Well, we are starting a six-week sermon series on the book of Ruth. And in the opening verses of chapter 1, you can hear that the story of Ruth takes place during a dark time in Israel's history. It was during the time of the Judges. It was that period of time after Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, but before they entered an established kingdom. This was a period of moral, political, and spiritual chaos. You see, God's people had his law, and they had his protection, but they were still behaving badly. They didn't worship God according to his law, and they were setting up places of worship to other gods. There was a lot of violence. Tribes would rise up against each other and harm their neighbors in many ways. Even when God's spirit would raise up a judge, a strong leader would help God's people get back on track, and then God's people would fall back. And then the judges themselves would make bad decisions. They were all very good at being bad. They were experts in disobedience. And the narrator of the book of Judges summarizes this era in Israel's history like this. If you look down on the previous page before you get to the book of Ruth, you'll read in Judges twenty-one twenty-five. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And against this backdrop comes one of the most beautiful and instructive stories in all of the Bible, and that's the story of Ruth. As we walk through the story of Ruth in the next several weeks, we will discuss some of the most important questions about life and faith. What does it mean to go through suffering well in difficult times on a personal level when the societal landscape is quite dark? Ruth will bring up many questions about God, Are God's people behaving badly when they lament that God's hand is against them? Or what are we to make of God's ways when they seem so hidden in dark times? There are only two places in the book of Ruth where the narrator tells us about God's action. One of them we read today in chapter 1, and the only other time comes in chapter 4. The story of Ruth confronts us with another question. Do you believe that God is still acting even when he isn't speaking directly. You see, in the book of Ruth, there is no thus says the Lord in this book like we do and like we have in the prophets, for instance, where the prophets tell God's people to turn back, to turn back to God. We don't have that in the book of Ruth. Instead, what we get in the book is God's speech in human voice. We learn about God in the dialogues between the major characters, between Ruth and Naomi, and in chapter 2, Boaz will join the mix. And we will even hear God's speech in smaller characters like the townspeople and the field workers. You know, in our day, we hear God's name in ways on the lips of many people. We hear, them, we hear God's name on the lips of church people, politicians, non-religious people. We hear God's name in the news. And just like in Ruth's time, we have to ask ourselves, with all this God talk, Where is he actually speaking? And as we walk through the story, there's one theme that we will return to again and again, and it's a theme that ties the whole story together, and that is this, the costliness of love. At key points in the story, there's a line drawn in the sand, and it forces the characters to make this decision. Are you willing to cross this line and sacrifice this much to show love? This will be the major theme of our sermon series. 
as we go about our day, as we're gripped with the idea that our world feels less safe and stable, as we look at the political landscape, as we look at society's perception of the church, as we wonder about the security of our own future, we are fragmented and we are isolated. And these are the very same issues that Ruth and Naomi confronted in their day to say nothing about the personal lie, their personal losses in their lives. So how do we respond to the losses around us in our personal lives? And what is God doing in the midst of it? These are the questions we're going to grapple with today in our sermon. But before we do that, let's ask God to help us begin our sermon series in Ruth. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you tell us to take heart because you've overcome this world. But like the disciples, we lose sight of your words when we gaze at the darkness around us. We fall asleep when you tell us to keep watch against sin and the devil. As we look into your ancient word, would you speak timeless truths to us here and now? Work in us faith to believe that you have overcome the world. By the power of your word, we pray. Amen. When I was a teenager, there were times I was maybe not so inclined to follow through with basic chores around the house. And my father was especially skillful in motivating me to get up and to start working. He didn't use force, and he didn't threaten me with the loss of things. All he had to do was start telling me his long and difficult story of immigration to the United States. And by the time he got to the part of working menial jobs despite having advanced training, I felt sufficiently guilty to do whatever chore needed to be done just to make the story stop. Well, other than wanting me to do chores, he never wanted me to forget that between being born in Egypt and immigrating to the United States, there was a lot of hardship and losses to endure between those two statements that he wanted me to remember. Well, the opening verses of Ruth starts with a similar story of immigrant struggle and hardship. So we're going to look at this passage today under three headings. First, losses. Second, lament. And third, loyalty. First, losses. Second, lament. Third, loyalty. The first thing we encounter are losses. Elimelech, a man from the area of Bethlehem, takes his wife and two sons and moves into the foreign country of Moab. Israel may have been God's chosen land for his people, but at the moment it was barren and couldn't produce enough food for survival. Moab was the country right next door to Israel. But this wasn't like moving from the United States into Canada where they were allies and on friendly terms. Moab and Israel were bitter enemies. And among other things, the king of Moab didn't let Israel pass through their land when the Israelites were leaving Egypt. Whatever troubles or dangers Elimelech would meet living in an enemy territory, it was better for him to eat bread looking over his shoulder than not to eat any bread at all. While maybe the family could have anticipated trouble in Moab, they weren't prepared for just how small their world would become when they moved there. Within the first three verses, the family story is handed off to Naomi because Elimelech dies. And because of how society was set up then, 
being left a widow was far more devastating than just being left without a life companion. Because if there were no male children, on top of being uh, given a death certificate for the death of a spouse, the widow would also be handed a bill of sale for whatever she owns. Now, thankfully, Naomi had two sons, Malon and Chilion. And while in the land of Moab, they married Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. While Naomi was left without a husband for herself, her son's marriages at least produced the prospects that maybe grandchildren would follow. The family worked hard together on whatever land they had, and they hoped to have future generations that they could pass that land on to. This mixed family got along in Moab. But as years went by, no male children were born. In fact, no children were born between the two marriages. But that was okay, because maybe somewhere in the back of Naomi's mind was that great story of Abraham and Sarah where Isaac was born to the couple while they were well advanced in years. As long as her sons were married, there was always hope. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah shared a life together, but they were so different culturally and religiously. But all those differences between them would fade into the background, because in a very short time, all of them would face the dead-end life of widowhood together. With the death of, their, of her two sons and the death of their husbands, these three women were instantly ushered into the end stages of life while they were still breathing. One of the ways that the Old Testament depicts God's favor to his people is granting them children and land, Listen to what Proverbs 31 says about the blessed life for women in ancient Israel. She considers, or they consider, fields and they buy it. With the fruit of their own hands, they plant vineyards. Their children rise up and call them blessed. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they did not have that anymore. The picture of these losses are astounding to consider. Some of you know quite well Uh, the loss of waking up and turning over in your bed only to realize that your loved one is not there anymore. Others of you know what it's like to walk by a child's bedroom and to have this painful awareness that it was you who buried your child versus them burying you. And still others of you know the pain of loneliness that comes with both of those losses. These were major losses for Naomi. But there's another level to these losses, and we miss it as English readers of this story. If you were to translate the names of Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, Naomi, and Bethlehem, we would feel the dagger twist in a bit more. Bethlehem means house of bread, and the house of bread is empty and barren, so they must move. Elimelech means my God is king, And in verse 3, my God is king dies in enemy territory. Malon and Chilion mean weak and frail, and the sons who carry the future of the family don't even eke through the opening paragraph of the story. And perhaps worst of all, Naomi's name means pleasant. And with each verse that passes, her life looks less and less so. It's hard enough to swallow a bitter pill 
It's another to have it burn on the way down. It's one thing to know you'll lose a job. It's another to lose it the same week you were promoted. It's one thing to be given a terminal illness. It's another to be given it on your birthday. When suffering feels this cruel and calculated, is it any wonder that humans ask, why God, why me, and why now? In preparing for the sermon, it was interesting to see how authors grappled with the losses in the opening verses as a way to smooth out its jagged edges. Since God's people are riotous and wild in this time, some have said that the famine was God's punishment on them. It was a punishment for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28.23 says, The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. It's said by some that Elimelech was disobedient to God for leaving the promised land, that his sons were unfaithful to God's covenant by marrying Moabite women, because God's law is clear that intermarriage would maybe create a situation of idolatry. So maybe all these losses and problems are the result of disobedience to God's law. There are many cases in the Bible where there is a one-to-one correspondence with disobedience and suffering. And scripture makes that connection clear for us. Adam and Eve in the garden, for instance, or King Saul when he loses his kingship. But then we also know from scripture that there are cases of human suffering that aren't because of personal sin. Despite the long and poetic explanations of Job's friends, he wasn't wrong for the suffering he experienced. The disciples asked Jesus about the blind man, which one sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus says to them, neither. Notice the reason given for suffering in our passage. The narrator is silent. And is the narrator telling us something and remaining silent about the reason for suffering? There are cases where it's easy to see human responsibility for suffering, especially if it's self-caused. You don't study for a test, you get a bad mark. But there are many other cases in which someone's suffering seems to be so far removed from anything that they've done that it would not be fair to, be peg, it, to, to peg it to them and, and for it to be their responsibility. But the story of Ruth presents us a third option that fits our complicated lives. Let me show you what I mean. When I was a green therapist, probably within the first months of doing that work, I met a young man that was court-ordered and referred to treatment. And although I didn't know very much in those early months, I had a sense of how things would go in our first interview. I could guess that he was delighted to be meeting with me for therapy. And during the first interview, I asked a little bit about the legal problems that brought him in to see me. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Sir, I deserve to be here because I broke the law. And I take responsibility for that. But let me ask you, did I deserve to go to jail for a year and spend three years on probation for a crime when the public defender didn't even bother to know my name before the trial or even look at the case? Did I deserve to get that harsh of a sentence when my friend who committed the same exact crime got his trial moved to an easier judge and could hire a private attorney to defend him? And he got way less time. Did I deserve that? Was that just? 
all of a sudden I was put on the defensive and not so thrilled to be answering questions. You see, the, reasons for, the reason for so much of human suffering is complicated. If we are honest with ourselves, we can always look back and say, I wish I did something differently. Maybe it could have prevented this. And it doesn't matter if it's a moral choice or it was a matter of choosing a different path. There are always factors outside of our control that make our suffering worse. And the way the story of Ruth is told, the narrator leaves it all in a complicated bundle and he leaves us with a different question. He doesn't ask, why is this happening? But rather, what is our response going to be in light of suffering? He doesn't allow us to be judge or philosopher, but a first responder. I haven't been to the ER very often, but I don't ever remember being asked the question at intake, excuse me, sir, we want to help you, but before we do, can you let us know, are you the cause of your suffering? A paramedic doesn't show up on the scene of crisis and start asking people, let me know who caused this suffering so I could figure out who I should start helping first. Did Israel bring this famine upon themselves for disobedience? We don't know. Was Elimelech wrong to sojourn to Moab instead of trusting God to provide? What about the intermarriage between Israelite sons and Moabite women? It isn't for us to know or to speculate. But the text makes very clear God's response to the cries of his people. Naomi hears this good news from the fields of Moab in verse 6. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. Whatever the causes of losses, the narrator wants us to see that God responds to his people's cries. We get a glimpse of how God is going to turn around this story. He addresses, he addresses them where the problems start. He helps them where the problem starts. He makes the barren land grow with good food. So I want to ask you, when you come across suffering in this world... What is your response? Are you tempted to judge or does the fact of suffering itself move you to compassion? Does your response reflect God's character? The text tells us not so much to reason about suffering, but how to respond to it. If our reflex becomes to respond with compassion to suffering, then we have an opportunity to be different than the world around us. New York Times columnist uh, Russ Dothat notes in a recent uh, uh, article that uh, decades of narcissism uh, is on the rise. Uh, In 2010, the University of Michigan reported that contemporary college students scored about 40% lower than their predecessors in the 1970s and testing their ability to put themselves in other people's shoes. They were more likely than their parents' generation to agree with statements like this. Other people's misfortunes do not usually disturb me a great deal. And they were less likely to agree with statements like, I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. I have a feeling that this study isn't just exposing the views of college students. It seems to capture our current situation now. And the writer of Ruth is showing us a way forward through highlighting God's compassionate response to suffering. 
The story then narrows on Naomi's response to her losses. And then she starts to return to Bethlehem before she lives in Moab. And she she laments and she pleads with Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab. So that's now where our story takes us. It takes us to Naomi's lament. Look at what it says to Orp, uh, look at what Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth in verses eight and nine. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. First, she thanks Orpah and Ruth for their kindness to her. You know, sometimes when people are so numb with sadness, they are in a fog or in a fishbowl, and they're not responsive to the surroundings around them. But Naomi's grief has enclosed her off to the help that she's receiving from her daughters-in-law. Despite her fragile state, she is grateful, and she pronounces a blessing on them that she herself will never have again, and that is marriage and children. In effect, she says to them, stay home, be in a place that you know. You are young. You can still get married and perhaps even have children. In other words, don't bother with me. I'm the living dead. You still have a chance. Naomi offers to Orpah and Ruth the only remaining thing that she has to give in her life, which is her blessing for them to remain home. Naomi's on a sinking ship and gives Orpah and Ruth the opportunity to get on a lifeboat before they all sink with her. Now her words can sound self-pitying, but I believe they are an act of goodwill. In fact, her lament reveals quite a strong faith in God. Because she believes the true God of Israel, who is the creator of, creator of all, she, she believes that he can actually bless them beyond the land of Israel, in the land of Moab. But Orpah and Ruth, they don't budge. They say to her, we're going to return with you to your people. Well, when kindness wouldn't persuade Naomi, her lament turns to logic. She tries to reason with them in verses 12 and 13. She says to them, why would you stick with me? I can do nothing for you. It's not like I have sons in my womb again that you can marry. Even if by some miracle I should bear sons again, by the time they grow up, you all are going to be too old. What are you doing? Just go ahead, leave, and hope that you get married. Because the bottom line is this, my life is bitter and lost for good. Even if any of the things I mentioned were possible, it won't matter because God's hand is against me. Now that phrase that Naomi uses about God's hand being against her is the same phrase used in Exodus about God's hand being against Pharaoh. It's all over for her. Is this really okay for her to say things like this about God? You know, maybe she deserves what's coming to her because she talks like this about God. We have a hard time believing that raw lament is not opposed to genuine faith. When C.S. Lewis first published A Grief Observed, it was his memoir reflecting on his wife's death. Originally, it was published under a pseudonym. And maybe it was published that way because he said things like this in it. 
Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is, is of coming to believe that such dreadful things about him are true. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no more. Isn't that Naomi's sentiment here? Do you ever find yourself thinking or saying similar things about God in your times of trouble? Lament is not easy. Even though our society continues to advance in many ways, we are still primitive in our ability to lament. But in other places around the world, and certainly before modern medicine, people had to work with suffering and death much more frequently in life. Now don't get me wrong, I'm very grateful we live on this side of modern medicine. But with the increased ability to treat more diseases, more diseases and more effectively, we can do a lot to defer death, which means that lamenting is an unfamiliar key for many of us. We know this because when we hear laments like C.S. Lewis's or Naomi's, we don't want to hear it very long. We want to challenge people. You can't talk like that about God. Or we want to correct them. You're wrong. God is kind. And you just don't see it. Or we want to cheer them up. God will work this for good. But nearly one-third of the Psalms, not to mention long passages in Job and and an entire book of the Bible, the book of Lamentations, are holy words inspired by God that are God's people's complaints against God. Lamenting to God is a sign of faith, not its absence. And here are two things that Naomi's lament teach us. Number one, lament assumes faith in God. The fact that we can even ask the question, why am I suffering, and direct that question to God already assumes a seed-like faith that there is someone who can answer that question. And not only that, lament also is a bold declaration in belief in God's sovereignty. Not only would God have the answer to our suffering, but lament says you are able to do something about it. Psalm ten twelve says this, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. David charges God with not doing what he had hoped. But make no mistake about it, the only place to bring that charge is to God himself. This is an act of faith. The second thing we learn from Naomi's lament is that lamenting is part of what it means to be human. It takes seriously the severe rupture between our distorted and twisted world and the life God intended to have for us. In fact, no one decries our brokenness more than Jesus Christ himself. Sin did not touch his nature, but Jesus Christ was the greatest lamenter over sin. For us on the cross, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the height of all human laments. The worst of our pains, the worst of our sorrows, the worst of our losses point us to the reality of this loss that somehow, maybe, God has left us. On our behalf, Jesus screams our greatest lament to the Father. We can respond to suffering and losses around us in many ways. We can speak to it. 
And that's good. We can alleviate it. That's good too. We can pray to God to overturn it. We should do that. But we could also share our faith by lamenting with others. But first, we must let the laments be heard and take them off mute. You know, earlier we saw that God responds to human suffering with compassion. And one of the ways uh, we can show that is expressing lament with others in their suffering. It is in the cries for help and, and it's the cries for hope that the reality of God's power can be made known. Well, finally, after looking at the losses and Naomi's response to lament, in the very last verse of our text, we get to Ruth's response of loyalty. You see, Naomi's appeal of kindness and her logic prevails with Orpah. She remains back home in Moab, but Ruth cannot be shaken so easily. Verse 14 says this, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, that is, kissed her goodbye, but Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth's response is really remarkable here. First, just consider this. She really doesn't have much to offer Naomi. She personally has nothing waiting for her in Bethlehem. She doesn't have a family to help her back back in Bethlehem. She doesn't have property there. In some ways, she's actually more of a liability. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. And she comes from the enemy group of God's people. Which actually makes this all that more special. Because by going with Naomi, she actually stands to lose far more than she can gain. At the expense of her own comfort, at the expense of her own future, she pledges loyalty to her mother-in-law. You see, earlier Naomi wishes that God would show Ruth and Orpah kindness by allowing them to remain in Moab and to take husbands for themselves. But it's Naomi who will be the recipient of God's kindness. Yes, God will show his faithfulness to Naomi through the kindness of a Moabite widow. That word kindness is translated from the Hebrew word hesed. And it's, uh, it's like a beautiful diamond because it has so many facets of meaning. It's translated in our English Bibles in many ways. It can mean uh, mercy, it can mean steadfast love, it can mean faithfulness, it can mean strength. But just as there was irony to Naomi's sufferings that we saw in the opening verses, there is some irony here that Ruth the foreigner, the widow, will be the means that God uses to show kindness to her. Behind Ruth's bold loyalty to Naomi is God's loyalty to both Ruth and Naomi. And in the face of Naomi's loss and lament, God doesn't say anything. He's silent but he's never stopped working on Naomi's behalf. Ruth's act of clinging to Naomi is an act of kindness that goes beyond what is required. uh, required. It goes beyond what is expected of her. She would have been perfectly right to remain in Moab, just just like Orpah, and no one would have blamed her. In fact, with Naomi's bitterness, it probably would have been a lot easier to remain back home. But Ruth gives far more than what is expected and at great cost to herself. Her clinging to Naomi is a picture of God's hesed, 
God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever and forever love in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible. In the face of Naomi's losses, while carrying her own losses, loss of a husband and loss of a country, Ruth answers Naomi's problem of suffering with unconditional loyalty. More than an answer, Naomi needs an advocate. And Ruth was that for her. And if we are honest with ourselves, while we are experiencing losses, it isn't the answers we come to that most help us. It's the unwavering loyalty of others, even when we're bitter and lamenting, especially so when we're going through that. Actor and comedian James Corbin uh, reflected on a difficult season in his life After diving headfirst into a celebrity lifestyle of drugs and partying, one evening he found himself so sad that he was just sobbing on his apartment floor. He was so depressed he couldn't even move. He didn't even know who to call anymore because he lost touch with family and friends as he became increasingly popular. But it was then that his father and mother showed up unannounced. His father was a Bible salesman for the Salvation Army, and it had been quite some time since James identified as a Christian. Well, on the floor, his father sat next to him and embraced him, and they wept together. And while they wept, the father briefly prayed for James. You see, James still doesn't identify as a Christian, but his dad's kindness and loyalty to him on that night at least keeps him interested in the question of what God is doing. And the same will be true for you. People may wonder what you believe about God when you go over and above what is required to show kindness. It's one thing for a teacher to prepare well for a lesson, but to stay after school with struggling students at no extra cost, that's hesed. It's one thing for a nurse to work hard to the end of her shift, But to stay and wait for the arrival of a couple's first baby well beyond her shift, that's hesed. It's one thing to clean up your toys because your parents ask you to, but it's another to help your sibling clean up theirs even when they aren't being nice. That's hesed. And the greatest act of hesed in all of Scripture comes from God himself. God's response to human suffering is to enter into it through Jesus Christ. He took to himself the worst of all human losses, the condition of God-forsakenness, and takes our human lament as his own. On the cross, he demonstrates his unwavering loyalty to us now and forever. Even if we feel like we are the walking dead like Naomi, if we cling to him by faith, He will move us through suffering to the glory that awaits us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.